Support for this podcast comes from you. And Biogen, committed to transforming the treatment of neurological disease. Biogen is working to develop life-changing therapies for people with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and spinal muscular atrophy. Biogen.com science. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years ago, we had the late Stanford professor Cliff Nass on the show, and his research focus was how people interact with their machines. So outside of teaching, on the side, uh, he would get hired by companies and they would bring him in to improve workers' productivity. And he would tell the bosses, here's what you need to do. Let these folks work on emails for like 20 minutes and then have them go back to their main work. And this is what the bosses said back to him. Oh, my gosh. Email's not worth 20 minutes. My goodness, it's so ridiculous. And they'll say, okay, let's clock how many minutes you use email a day, and it's 150, 200, and these little squirts. So I asked Nass, why? Why do we do things in little squirts? And what about email or Twitter or Facebook or anything that interrupts our routine makes it so appealing? So I think it's the feeling of these quick squirts give you a sense of accomplishment. And one of the the signs of maturity is to be able to realize that achieving a long-term goal should give you a sense of accomplishment. But reading a quick news story, you know, responding rapidly, consuming a quick Twitter message or a text message gives us a feeling like, hey, I checked something off my to-do list. There is a solution here. It's something that Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychiatrist, knew about. Charles Darwin did it too. Bill Gates does it regularly. It's what's called deep work. Cal Newport, a professor of computer science at Georgetown who has written about deep work, tells the story of an entrepreneur who got a book contract and he took a flight all the way to Japan simply to free himself from distractions so he could focus on writing. He wrote all the way to Japan. He had an espresso at the Tokyo airport and he turned around and came home, manuscript in hand. He said it was the best $4,000 he ever spent. Cal Newport is here to talk about Deep Work, which is the title of his latest book. Cal, welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. So how do you describe deep work to people? Well, deep work is the activity in which you're focused without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. Now, this, of course, is much different than how most of us spend most of our time, which is in a state of continually shifting attention, a little bit of attention on one thing, a quick check of something else, back to the original thing. Deep work, by contrast, is intense focus, unbroken on one thing. Do you think that if you ask people if they were working hard and focusing, they would think they were, but they're really not, or they know they're not focusing? I think a lot of people think that they are actually focused and getting a lot done. When if you're actually observing them objectively, you would see that's not at all the case. Hmm. And I think a big culprit for this reality is this effect called attention residue, which says even a, a quick check of, say, an email inbox or a social media website or a text box on your phone, even a quick check can actually leave a residue for 10, 20 minutes that significantly reduces your cognitive capacity. So I think Mm -hmm. what a lot of people are doing is almost focusing on one thing, but with these quick checks sprinkled enough that they're actually operating in a state of significantly reduced cognitive capacity. 
what made you so interested in deep work yourself? Because, I mean, it's really changed how you work. How is it, was it something that you got into? Well, I'm in one of the last fields where people actually still talk about deep work as a tier one skill that's core for your success. So I'm a theoretical computer scientist. I prove theorems for a living. So in my world, when I was coming up, this is still a place where people actually talk about how good can you focus and that you admire people based on their ability to lock in on something cognitively demanding. So it's something that had always been at my, uh, in my world. But as I actually looked deeper into it, what became clear is that this is much more broadly valuable than we recognize right now. It's not just for the sort of writers and professional mathematicians among us that the ability to focus is important. It's actually a broadly useful skill, and I don't think we're talking about this enough. Right. When you talk about a lot of people who have adopted this idea of deep work, basically being left alone for large chunks of time every day. I mean, I think about somebody like uh, Charles Darwin, who had a very kind of regimented life where he ate breakfast alone. I mean, he had these very specific things he did, and he was thinking during those periods of the day. Yeah, deep work is very difficult. It's taxing. So what you find if you study people historically who have been good at it is that they build these rituals surrounding the deep work sessions. I do it at the same time, or I do it at a special place, or I have a certain habits of activities that happen during the deep work. It's really no different than if you're doing sort of intense physical training, that you probably have a, a routine that's really fixed because, you know, otherwise you're, you're unlikely to just spontaneously pick up some weights and start lifting. So I think acknowledging that deep work is not only valuable, but it is hard and that you're really going to need to support it. And this is probably going to require some lifestyle changes and some rituals and some routines. It's really important if you're going to succeed with it. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, okay, well, this is great for, you know, somebody who, like you, is an academic. Uh, maybe this is great for Bill Gates, who, you know, has all the money in the world and is retired mostly from his Microsoft work anyway. But for me, you know, for an average worker who has to get things done every day, who people want to say, hey, you know, can, can you answer this question really quickly? I, I've got to get this information out to put it in a memo or whatever. It's hard to disappear for two hours at a time because you're doing deep work. Well, here's my recommendation. I mean, first of all, we recognize that there's two types of work efforts. There's deep work and then there's everything else, which we can call for now shallow work. Uh, both are important. But the way I like to think about it is that shallow work is what tends to keep you from getting fired, while deep work <laughs> is what gets you promoted. Okay. And so my recommendation is actually that if you work for someone, that you actually have a conversation with whoever supervises you or is your boss and say, okay, here's what shallow work is. Here's what deep work is. Both is important. What should my ratio be? What's my target? You know, what should be the ratio of deep to shallow work I should be trying to hit? Agree on this and then measure and come back and say, hey, I'm falling well short of this. What, what can we do to make some changes? And you'd be surprised how malleable some of these workplace cultures are. Some of these workplace cultures where you say it is just ingrained in the culture here at WGBH or wherever it happens to be that if everyone is not on a Slack channel that the whole, the whole uh, station is going to fall apart and we're going to you know, lose our radio license. You feel like it's just ingrained. <laughs> and I have case after case of people have this conversation and suddenly there's massive changes and, and now there's protected time and unprotected time and the, and the amount of high quality, high craft output that people are producing really goes up. So these things are malleable. And I really think the first step is to start talking about it and say, what should I be aiming for here? You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Cal Newport, author of the book, Deep Work, Rules for Focus, Success in a Distracted World. 
So I think another barrier to working really deeply is that increasingly, and this is not true everywhere, but increasingly people are in very open spaces where it's hard to concentrate because, for example, there are conversations going on around you. So the possibility of getting deep down into something and kind of isolating yourself the way that Carl Jung did or the way that Charles Darwin did, um, that's really hard to do. I mean, you're not in the English countryside and you're not in a Swiss castle. Yes, I think open office spaces have been a disaster for, for productivity in the knowledge era. I think we're going to look back and say, this was a dumb move. And, you know, I actually went back and, and, and dived into the sort of motivating architectural case studies that led to the open office movement. Take, for example, the famous Bell Labs Murray Hill campus, which is cited as one of the, the pieces of inspiration for the right, open office right. movement. Because they said, you know, you have all of these different thinkers from different fields who are running into each other right. and these serendipitous encounters. Right. But if you if you go back and, and study that building, and I actually is now a, a very prominent um, uh, doctor, but his dad was a famous physicist, and he used to uh, work as a janitor, help cleaning the halls in Murray Hill, and he was telling me about it. That the architecture there is not an open office. Actually, the thinkers had very private offices where they'd spend a lot of time thinking really hard, uninterrupted. The the magic of the Murray Hill campus is that everyone was connected on one long hallway so that when you emerged from your deep work, you were sort of forced in the hallway and in the dining hall to to meet and mingle and have new ideas. It was a mm. hub and spoke architecture. If you get rid of the spoke part, the part where you actually do the work and you only focus on the hub part where the inspiration is, it's you have to remember Edison's adage about innovation being 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. Open offices are just focusing on that 1% and making it impossible to do the other 99. So this is why if you've had this discussion, here's my deep work to shallow work ratio, I think it's very easy to pivot from there and say, okay, well then during these deep work hours that we've talked about and negotiated and agreed are important, I'm getting out of here. What's the minimum amount of time you think you need to really do some deep thinking? Let's say you don't have four hours. You know, if somebody has a little bit of time What's sort of, you know, the minimum qualifier for doing some deep work? Right around 90 minutes. Okay. I mean, it's going to take you 20 minutes just to clear out the residue in your mind of everything else going on. And then you get a good hour or so after that of sort of high, high level depth. And you want to do at least an hour if you're going to get something done. Okay. Now, you must have looked at CEOs, high level people, you know, people who've really achieved a lot who don't have this philosophy. Do you have a sense of, you know, how people uh, succeed without deep work? Or, I mean, or is there, in your view, really no way to do that? Well, first, it's important to emphasize that there certainly are positions in which deep work is just not that relevant. And one of the positions I actually point out is if you are, for example, a CEO of a large organization, deep work is probably not that relevant to your success, that it makes more sense for a CEO to be making decisions from a common base of experience and a common strategy for the company on the results of deep work of other people, maybe who's, you know, below her saying, okay, Hmm. we've thought about this for a long time. Here's option A and B. The CEO says, let's do option B. If you're in sales or if you're in, as they call euphemistically around here in DC, uh, government relations, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Deep work's not that important. Connections are important. Networking is important. Right, Constant right. contact's important. Right. So there, lunches with people are important. Lunches with right. people are important. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so it's 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 not for everyone, but I think it's for 
way, way more people uh, than you would expect. So just because your current job happens to be one where attention is fractured and people send emails all the time doesn't necessarily mean that deep work wouldn't be very valuable. And I think in the vast majority of cases, really where you're going to produce the most value for yourself and for your organization is if you're able to actually concentrate intensely to build craft and to create things uh, that are valuable. And this is just simple market economics. I mean, if you're spending a lot of time on email or social media, this is something that any 16-year-old with a smartphone can do. So there's no way that you're actually producing something rare and valuable there. So that time really is not that valuable as far as the market's concerned. Whereas when you're concentrating intensely, you're actually building your skills and applying your skills at the peak of your current capability. So you're producing the rarest, most valuable things possible that you're able to actually produce that's much more likely to be valued by the market. So no amount of busyness or emails or accessibility is going to translate into an actual significant amount of value in the marketplace. Are there any companies that are putting deep work into practice that maybe we would have heard of? Well, right now they tend to be uh, either smaller startups or they tend to be teams within a very large organization. What I'm yet to see, and I'm surprised, but I think it's going to change, is I'm yet to see sort of the large Silicon Valley players make this change, but I, it has to be inevitable. I mean, if I was Google and I was spending as much money as they are on programming talent, the, the very first thing I would do is say, I'm turning off all of your guys' email addresses. I'm not paying this money for you to be sending email. I want you concentrated on producing code. I mean, if you, if you focus intensely on your code, that can be a 5 to 10x better output than if you have a Slack channel open that whole time and you're in these type of conversations. So because we're talking dollars and cents, I think it is inevitable in the next five to 10 years that we're going to start to see major companies moving away from these sort of ad hoc, constant communication style models and towards much more structured workflows focused on the people who create value, letting them create value at the highest possible level. Do you think that this approach would be incredibly difficult for young people who are, I think it's fair to say in many cases, surgically attached to their smartphones and like texting all the time and surfing the web all the time. And they've been practicing that for 10 years. And, you know, would that be hard to go into a job and say, okay, well, I'm done with that? It is hard. And it's why when I, I talk about how one develops the ability to do deep work at a high level, there's two types of efforts. You know, one type is just practicing depth, practicing concentration. But the other type, which I think is just as important, is actually training your brain to be comfortable with deep work. And a big part of that is you really have to become re-familiar with boredom. And so this is particularly hard for, for young people because if you've trained your brain that at the slightest hint of boredom, it's going to get a novel stimuli delivered through your phone or a tablet, it is really going to struggle when it comes time to do deep work to actually maintain concentration on one thing. So I actually uh, coach young people in how to detox from this sort of addiction to stimulation. And a big part of it, and people don't like this, but a big part of it is practicing being bored. Uh, don't bring the phone, put the phone away. Uh, have set times in the night where you're going to use the phone and not using it outside of that. And if you're stuck in line at the bank and there's nothing to look at and it's an hour long line, then you're just going to be stuck in the line at the bank and be bored. It might sound terrible, but it actually can be just as important to your ability to do deep work as it would be, you know, to eat healthy if you're hoping to become, you know, a professional athlete. Right. I'm going to tell that to our intern. I'm sure he's going to be thrilled and uh, <laughs> he can he can try it out. 
Boredom's great. Boredom is is underrated, but but it's also, it's the foundation. I mean, it's the foundation of the ability to concentrate. You have Mm. to be comfortable without stimuli. And I'll tell you, especially for young people, it makes your life a lot less anxious. I think there's a lot of us, I mean, I'm young myself, but I see the people that are uh, just a few years younger than me sort of have this background hum of anxiety in their life, unspecified sort of anxiety. This is a side effect of having this sort of constant flitting of attention from one thing to another. It's We're not wired for it. Right. So I think boredom has a lot to recommend it. And so I'm a big... I'm a big boredom, but look, I'm the guy saying be bored and quit social media and, you know, and, and sit there and stare at things for a long amount of time. So uh, I'm not I'm not always the most you know popular person at cocktail parties, but I can tell you, you know, a deep life, it really can be not just a productive life, but a pretty meaningful life as well. So it's, it's worth giving this some thought. Cal Newport is the author of Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. He's also an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown Cal, thanks for your time. Well, thank you. Speaking of distractions, how many hours have you frittered away on Facebook or Twitter? We've got a link to Cal Newport's TED Talk about dumping social media altogether. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. 